Happy hauntings, horror fans, and welcome to this week's episode of Megan's Murder Movies. I'm your host, Megan, and this week I am all bundled up with some hot cocoa, and I'm ready to dive into Black Christmas 1974. I have watched this movie, oh gosh, so many times over the last few weeks. We are currently experiencing a mini blizzard, is what people are calling it, where I'm living, and yeah, it's really cold. Um... don't want to go outside it's with the wind chills it's like negative 50 degrees which is bananas um where i used to live we would barely get snow in the valley like every so often maybe a couple six inches something like that so this is new for me um i bought a almost 100 year old house at the end of the summer which is where i'm living in this mini blizzard and uh very drafty old windows so uh just been kind of bundled up in my bedroom watching everything i can get my hands on horror related christmas wise and i revisited an old classic that i've loved forever um and just kind of forgot how amazing it is so today we're gonna do black christmas from 1974 i do really like the 2006 black christmas and we'll do that on the pod one day for sure but this one is just so comfy cozy creepy oh it's so good and really just kind of paved the way for so many of the slashers that we know and love today so without further ado let's get into a summary As winter break begins, a group of sorority sisters, including Jess and the often inebriated Barb, begin to receive anonymous, obscene phone calls. Initially, Barb eggs the caller on, but stops when he responds threateningly. Soon, Barb's friend Claire goes missing from the sorority house, and a local adolescent girl is murdered, leading the girls to suspect a serial killer is on the loose. But no one realizes just how near the culprit is. Next, we'll jump into our cast breakdown. So first, we'll start with our main gal, Jess, who's played by Olivia Husey. Olivia is an English film, stage, and television actress. Her accolades include a Golden Globe Award and David D. Donatello Award, the daughter of Argentine opera singer Andreas Osuna. Uh, she was born in Buenos Aires, but spent most of her early life in her mother's native England. She aspired to become an actress at a young age and studied drama for five years at London's Italia Conti Academy of Theatre Arts. She began acting professionally as an adolescent and appeared in the 1966 London production of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, opposite Vanessa Redgrave. This led to her being scouted for the role of Juliet in the 1968 film adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. She received widespread acclaim and international recognition for this performance. And then in 1974, she appeared as a lead character, Jess Bradford, in the cult slasher film Black Christmas, which earned her the title of Scream Queen. She reunited with the director in the miniseries Jesus of Nazareth in 1977 as Mary and appeared in Agatha Christie's adaptation of Death on the Nile in 1978. She appeared in several international productions throughout the 80s, including the Japanese production Virus and the Australian dystopian action film Turkey Shoot. She appeared in two made-for-television horror productions, including Psycho 4, The Beginning, and Stephen King's It, with which both first screened in 1990. 
In addition to screen acting, she worked as a voice actress, providing voice roles in multiple Star Wars video games, including Star Wars Rogue Squadron, Star Wars Force Commander, and Star Wars The Old Republic. She's got a great voice. Um, One of my favorite parts of this movie is her answering the phone. Like, it just, for some reason, makes me chuckle because she's always just screaming. And maybe that was the time back in the day because the connections were bad and you had to have the operator, like, do stuff. But she's just always answering the phone. Hello? Hello? Like, very, very intensely. And it gets me every time. But I love it. It's great. Next, we'll move on to the role of Peter, who's played by Kier Duella. He is an American actor. He played astronaut David Bowman in the 1968 film 2001, A Space Odyssey, and its sequel 2010, The Year We Made Contact. His other film roles include David and Lisa. In 1962, Bunny Lake is Missing. In 1965, Black Christmas, of course, in 1974. He studied acting at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York City and has also performed on stage in New York City and in regional theaters. He said that despite being more recognized for his film work, he does prefer stage acting. Next, we will move on to the character of Barb, who is played by Margot Kidder. She is a Canadian-American actress whose career spanned five decades. Her accolades include three Canadian Screen, Canadian screen Awards and one Daytime Emmy Award. Though she appeared in an array of film and television roles, she is most widely known for her performance as Lois Lane in the Superman film series, appearing in the first four films. She began her acting career in the 1960s, appearing in low-budget Canadian films and television series before landing the lead role in Quacks Her Fortune has a cousin in the Bronx in 1970. Then she played twins in Brian De Palma's cult thriller Sisters, a sorority student in the slasher film Black Christmas, she also appeared in The Great Waldo Pepper, opposite Robert Redford. In 1977, she was cast as Lois Lane. Her performance as Kathy Lutz in the blockbuster horror film Amityville Horror in 1979 gained her further mainstream exposure, after which she wished to reprise her role as Lois Lane in Superman 2, 3, and 4. The 90s were marked by significant health problems for her. In the 90s, she sustained serious injuries in a car accident and left her temporarily paralyzed. By the 2000s, she maintained steady work in independent films and television and with guest starring roles in Smallville, Brothers and Sisters, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, and The L Word. And then she appeared in the 2022 off-Broadway production of The Vagina Monologues. In 2015, she won a Daytime Emmy for her performance in the children television series R.L. Stein's The Haunting Hour, and then in 2005, she became a naturalized U.S. citizen. She was an outspoken political, environmental, and anti-war activist and continued to participate in political and activist causes until her death. So then we'll move on to Lieutenant Ken Fuller, who's played by John Saxon. He's an American actor who worked on more than 200 film and television products during the span of 60 years. He was known for his work in westerns and horror films, often playing police detectives and, or, yeah, often playing police officers and detectives. He was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He studied acting with Stella Alder before beginning his career as a contract actor for Universal Pictures, appearing in films such as Rocky, Pretty Baby, in 1956, Portrait in Black, 1961, which earned him a reputation as a teen idol and won him a Golden Globe Award for New Star of the Year. 
During the 1970s and 80s, he established himself as a character actor, frequently portraying law enforcement officials in horror films such as Black Christmas in 1974 and A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. We'll talk about him probably quite a bit on the podcast because he's got so much going on. Saxon appeared in numerous Italian films from the early 60s. In a 2002 interview, he said of this period, at the time in Hollywood, at the time, Hollywood was going through a crisis, but England and Italy were making great many films. Besides, I thought that the European films were much more mature quality than most of what Hollywood was making at the time. He appeared in Italian productions all through the 1970s and 80s up until 1994 when he made Jonathan of the Bears. In addition to the roles in horror films, he co-starred with Bruce Lee in the martial arts film Enter the Dragon. He had supporting roles in westerns The Appaloosa, for which he was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, Death of a Gunfighter in 1969, Joe Kidd in 1972, as well as the made-for-television thriller Raid on Enneby in 1977. In the 1990s, he occasionally appeared in films with small roles in Wes Craven's New Nightmare and From Dusk Till Dawn. Also, very sorry if you hear my dog eating in the background. I've got her in my office with me because it's warm. It's warmer in my office. We've got a little space heater going um, as opposed to the rest of the house. So just trying to keep her warm. So very sorry. I probably will edit this and you won't even be able to hear it. But I do want to apologize if you can hear her crunching and munching in the corner. Next, we'll move on to the character of Miss Mack, who is the kind of house mother in the sorority house. And she is played by Miriam Waldman. Marian is a character actress who was born in Ontario, Canada. Her mother was a professor and her father was a physician. She began her career as a stage actress in the 50s in Toronto, initially as a choir girl before branching out by acting in stage plays. Outside her work in live theater, she also acted in a few films as well as being a writer for several TV shows. She was especially memorable as the drunken foul mouse house mother in Miss Mac in the seasonal slasher classic Black Christmas. Her hobbies included reading, traveling, astrology, and attending both parties and various events around Toronto. So next we will move on to the role of Phil, or I think Phyllis is supposed to be her name, but everyone calls her Phil. She's another um, sister in the sorority house, and she was played by Andrea Martin. Andrea is an American-Canadian actress, singer, and comedian, best known for her work in the television series SCTV and Great News. She's appeared in films such as Black Christmas, Wag the Dog in 1997, Hedwig and the Angry Inch in 2001, My Big Fat Greek Wedding in 2002, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 in 2016, Little Italy in 2018. She also lent her voice to the animated film Anastasia in 1997, The Rugrats Movie in 1998, and Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius in 2001. She has been equally prolific in the world of theater, winning Tony Awards for both My Favorite Year and the 2013 revival of Pippin. She also appeared on the Broadway... On the Broadway? She also appeared on Broadway in Candid, Oklahoma, Fiddler on the Roof, Young Frankenstein, Exit the King, and Act One. She has received five nominations for the Tony Award for Best Feature Actress in a Musical, more than any other actress in awards history. And she received her first nominations for the Tony Award for Best Feature Actress in a Play for the 2016 revival of Noises Off. 
Next, we'll move on to Mr. Harrison, who is Claire's father in Black Christmas, and he's played by James Edmund. James was born in Ontario, Canada as well. He was an actor known for Black Christmas, Devil Girl from Mars in 1954, and ABC Weekend Specials 1977. He was previously married to Shirley Falser, and he previously passed away in 2000 in Canada. Not much on him, not many roles, um, but a pretty, a pretty significant character throughout the film. Next, we'll move on to Sergeant Nash, who's kind of, I guess, a comedic character, if you want to say that. Um, He's kind of the cop that doesn't really know what's going on, doesn't ask the right questions. Uh, Barb ends up playing kind of a prank on him, and he doesn't realize it. Um, Even later, uh, when Lieutenant Ken finds out, he kind of tries to tell Nash and tries to get Nash to realize that it was a joke, um, and Nash just kind of doesn't get it. But he was played by Douglas, or Doug, McGrath, and he's a Canadian actor who, whose most notable role was that of Peter in the acclaimed Canadian film Going Down the Road in 1970, and its sequel Down the Road Again in 2001. He played an acclaimed Canadian film's Wedding in White in 1972, The Hard Part Begins in 1973, of course, Black Christmas in 1974. Russian Roulette in 1975, Coming Out Alive in 1980. He had a supporting role as a gym teacher in the cult comedy Porky's in 1981 and also played roles in The Escape Artist in 1982, Twilight Zone the Movie in 1983, the Australian comedy The Return of Captain Invincible in 1983, Always in 1989, and Ghosts of Mars in 2001. Him During his time acting in the U.S., he also appeared in several films alongside Clint Eastwood, including The Outlaw Josie Wales in 1976, The Gauntlet in 1977, Runkabilly in 1980, and Pale Rider in 1985. Next, we'll move on to Chris, who plays Claire's boyfriend in the film, and he is played by Arthur or Art Hindle. He became an actor... Um, or before he became an actor, he modeled clothes and catalogs for Canadian companies, Simpson, Sears, and Edens. He actually was also a stockbroker, and he made guest appearances in a long list of television programs from North America, and has also appeared in several movies dating back from 1971. His first major role was in a biker movie, The Proud Rider, spawned the popularity of Easy Rider. He worked with a real motorcycle gang, Satan's Choice of Oshawa, and it was during production of the film that he almost changed his professional name to Jeremy Kane. The producers thought that Hindle should have more of a showbiz-sounding name, but he decided to stick with his own. Um, in 1971, he was cast as Billy Duke in the film Face Off. The film led to offers from Hollywood, which he resisted until work dried up, and Hindle, who had four children by the time, finally moved to Los Angeles in 1974. He had supporting roles in the Canadian horror film Black Christmas in 1974. He had a pivotal leading role in the 1978 remake, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He went on to playing the lead role of The Brood and appeared in the 1981 teen sex comedy film Porky's. He later played the role of Harry Dobbs in the popular Canadian television series North of 60. And from the 1990s, he also worked as a director. He starred in and directed the award-winning series Paradise Falls, Showing on cable stations in the USA and on the Showcase channel in Canada. 
Next, we'll move on to the character of Claire, who is played by Lynn Griffin. And Claire's another sister in the sorority house. Uh, So Lynn is a Canadian actress. She's best known for her work in film, television, and stage, particularly her appearances in the horror films Black Christmas, 1974, and Curtains in 1983, and the reoccurring role on the television series Wind at My Back from 1969 until 2001. And that is going to wrap up kind of our main cast. There's a couple other little, um, other minor roles, but they don't even really get introduced as character names. Um, You just have to kind of figure that out. So those are the main characters that are going to be named as we go out. So now that we've met the cast, we can get to some fun facts. Um, There's some really cool ones about this film. I really enjoyed doing research into this because I've seen this film so many times but never really took the time to like research it or ask questions or things and so it was really fun to do this one for the podcast and kind of get more of a background of it and it just made me love it even more it's such a good movie so our first fun fact is that it went through several script evolutions so black christmas began life as a screenplay by roy moore called the babysitter which writes on the now familiar urban legend of a babysitter tormented by a killer who turns out to be making phone calls from inside the house the concept was tweaked by writer timothy vaughn to include a collegiate setting and eventually made its way to director bob clark who made a working home for himself in canada after kickstarting his film career in the united states with the low budget films like children shouldn't play with dead things the script then retitled Stop Me underwent yet another evolution in Clark's hands. The director dialed back on the murder sequences, believing they were too violent, and added various dialogue to emphasize the adultness of college students, including the scene where Barb is drunkenly ranting about turtles having sex. It's a whole, that's a whole scene. Clark also introduced the idea that the film would never actually show the killer to the audience, something more the film's sole credited writer didn't want to go along with at first, according to Clark. More eventually came around, and the film's now-famous killer concept stuck, which we can see kind of progressed in Halloween, where, I mean, we know what Michael looks like in certain, you know, the Rob Zombie, we see what he looks like when he's younger, but he's just the shape. Like, we don't we don't have much characteristics for him except for the mask, um, and so it makes it, you can it can be anybody, which makes it that much more creepy. So Olivia ended up joining the cast because of a psychic. Clark wanted to make Black Christmas as sophisticated as he possibly could and pursued top-tier talent to elevate his script. To that end, he reached out to Olivia, then best known for her work in Romeo and Juliet, to play the role of the final girl, Jess Bradford. She took the part when she showed up on set. She apparently had a rather interesting reason for saying yes, according to co-producer Jerry Arbeid. She told him that she'd been informed by a psychic she would be involved in a film in Canada that would make a lot of money. Since Black Christmas was being filmed in Toronto, she believed it to be the film the psychic was referring to. And he told her that he hoped that that was correct. And I think it was. So I know that I had said that Miss Mack is the house mother, and they actually had asked Betty Davis to play the house mother, um, who was loosely based on one of Clark's aunts, who had a habit of hiding liquor bottles throughout the house. The role was vividly played by Miriam Waldman, like I mentioned, but Clark originally had bigger names in mind. The role was offered to screen legend Betty Betty Davis, but she ultimately turned the role down. Gilda Radner was also supposed to co-star. She was almost cast as Phil, 
But just a month before filming was set to begin, she was cast on a new TV show called Saturday Night, which turned into Saturday Night Live, and the role of film went to future screen and stage legend Andrea Martin. So, sadly, one actor was fired for a pretty, pretty bummer reason. Um, the role of Lieutenant Ken Fuller was originally went to Edmund O'Brien, Oscar winner. He agreed to do the film, but when he arrived in Toronto and began to work, Clark and Arby noticed that something was wrong. Um, he was having a hard time remembering where he was, who he was, and once declared he was going to go back to his hotel room when they were dining together in a restaurant in another part of town, it became clear that Alzheimer's was beginning to take hold of the veteran actor, and Clark and Arbreed were worried of what might happen if they took him out to cold Toronto for the night shoots, um, which there's that's you know a big portion of what we see Lieutenant Fuller doing. He's out doing a search for this missing girl, um, and they just wanted to, to keep him safe, and so sadly he was let go uh, because they... You know, they were worried that they couldn't keep him safe and he couldn't keep himself safe. Um, you know, and of course, you know, he was needed to know his lines and all of those types of things, but definitely wasn't because he was a bad person and it just sucks. Alzheimer's sucks. Anyway, the next fun fact that I have is that a lot of the snow wasn't real. Um, it was shot in Toronto during the winter, uh, but that it they just didn't have a lot of snow going on at the time. Um, and so they had to bring in a lot of it. They had a fire truck spraying out flame retardant foam, the kind usually used for hard landings on airport tarmacs to stimulate kind of that to simulate that wintry look. So this was one thing that I really enjoyed learning: the creepy phone calls. Some of them were done upside down. So one of the most memorable elements of Black Christmas is the repeated use of phone calls from the killer which takes the form of threats, screaming, and arguments from two personalities calling themselves Billy and Agnes, though little else is told to us during the film. The calls were mixed by composer Carl Zeter, and the voices were done by actor Nick Manusco, who auditioned with his back to Clark so the director would hear him rather than see him. The voices were done by actor Nick Mancuso, Clark, and other uncredited performers. According to Mancuso... One of the ways he achieved a particularly creepy vocal effect was to perform the calls upside down. I did the voice actually standing on my head to compress my throat and give it that kind of weird spooky sound, which I thought was really cool. Um, at one point, they had one of the cameramen play the killer, um, which makes sense because there's tons of like POV shots from the killer walking through the house, climbing up the stairs into the attic, dialing the phone, so it would kind of only make sense to have the camera person operate and do those scenes. There is a backstory for the killer. Uh, Clark was determined to keep the killer's identity mysterious throughout Black Christmas, so other than the names Billy and Agnes, we know very little about who he is or why he kills. But that doesn't mean no information exists. According to Clark, he developed a very strong backstory for Billy that provides a suitable logic to the phone calls. Billy is abusive and abused his little sister and was abused himself and probably killed his parents and probably locked her in the basement for five or six years. And I think she escaped and Billy doesn't like girls and it turns out Agnes doesn't like boys. A version of the backstory was explored in greater detail in the 2006 series or um, remake, which we will definitely do because I really enjoy that one. 
like I mentioned, several crew members uh, made cameos in the movie, either by playing the killer uh, if they were cameramen or doing some of the phone calls. Um, because it was low budget, they kind of tried to cut costs and save time where they could, which meant various crew members ended up playing small roles. The producer, for example, appeared in the film as the taxi driver at the door of the sorority house. Um, property master John Frenchie appears as a snowmobiler during the search in the park. Costume designer Debbie Wielden appears as a sorority sister, and production supervisor Dave Robinson appears as a police officer. It was just a way to save money and keep things good. Next fun fact is that it was a hit in Canada, but it bombed in America at first. So Black Christmas was released in the fall of 1974 in its home country of Canada, and creative marketing helped it make a box office success. Warner Bros. picked up the film for distribution in the United States, and though the response to previous screenings was positive, the studio was worried that the title would make people think it was a black exploitation film rather than a Christmas horror feature. The film was retitled Silent Night, Evil Night for its US release and audiences never quite latched on. Ironically, as was common practice at the time in Canada, various sets of the film had been dressed with the American flag to make the movie appealing to US audiences. Revival screenings and home movie releases eventually took care of Black Christmas in the States and the film is now considered a holiday horror classic. Next one fact is that it helped inspire Halloween, which I think if you've seen Halloween and you watch about Christmas, uh, that's a very easy connect with a lot of this. Um, Black Christmas is considered one of the prototypes for what would become the slasher genre thanks to its high body count, point of view shots, and use of final girl plot device, among other things. But it turns out the film actually has a rather direct connection to another of one of the most influential films in the genre. After it was released, Clark and writer-director John Carpenter were working on a project together. That project was never released, but the work did eventually lead to Carpenter one day expressing to Clark that he loved Black Christmas and asking if a sequel or companion film could ever happen. Clark said he wasn't really interested in going back to that territory, but he did offer up an idea that could be. It'll be he was captured after all. He was put in an institution, and the movie would begin the night he escapes back in town, and they don't know it yet, but I'm going to call it Halloween. Bob Clark recalled telling Carpenter. He deserved the full, expansive credit he's gotten for the movie, for doing that movie. A few words about an idea are hardly a screenplay in a finished movie. So another fun fact is that the this was kind of inspired by a real event that happened in Montreal, um, which occurred around the Thanksgiving holiday season, November 17th, 1943. A 14-year-old boy named George Webster brutally battered several family members with a baseball bat, leaving his mother dead and three others seriously injured. Both the film's score and the audio for the disturbing phone calls took an avant-garde approach. To create the mysterious music for the film score, composer Carl tied forks, combs, and knives onto strings of a piano to warp the sound of their notes. When played to further distort the sound, he recorded it onto an audio tape and then slowed it down. Multiple actors, including Bob Clark, lent their talents to record the disturbing phone calls, but a bulk of the work, of course, like I said, was provided by Nick. All right, and that is the end of our fun facts. Now we can get into the scene-by-scene breakdown. Really excited to jump into this one, and I hope that you guys, if you've not watched this, that you enjoy it, and if you have watched it, you enjoy a nice little recap whenever you're listening to this. We open with the credits. We see a house in the dark lit up with Christmas lights. Silent Night is playing. We hold in the house while our credits roll. We see a girl go in the front door, and we see it's a sorority house. 
We're looking in from the outside and we get a POV walking up to the front door. The camera's wobbly and slow, very spooky. The camera looks up to the second floor and then we see someone looking in that that front window again. We see a woman come downstairs and she asks who left the front door open. She closes the door and we see that whoever is outside is leaving the front of the house. We learn that Barb is the one who closes the door and now we're inside and she's talking with a couple. We learn that this is Phil and her boyfriend about setting up for a holiday party they're throwing tomorrow for a bunch of kids at the brother fraternity house. Barb says that the kids should arrive about 1 p.m. for the party and then the phone rings. Uh, another woman, Jess, answers it. She's like, hello, hello. And there's a kind of a difficult connection. It's for Barb. Barb says that she's going to take it in the other room because it's her mom. She goes out of kind of the living room area into kind of the front hall and takes the call there where it's a little bit quieter, which makes sense. We see the point of view again outside the house and now this person is breaking in. They're in the attic and it's just covered with stuff. Barb is on the phone with her mom, and her mom lets her know that she won't be spending time with her this holiday season, as she's on vacation with her new boyfriend. Barb is clearly hurt by this. Um, We only hear Barb's side of the call, but it's pretty easy to tell kind of what's going on. We cut to the intruder. They are climbing down from the attic and into one of the bedrooms. We see a girl, who we learn is Claire, saying goodbye to her boyfriend, Chris. Barb comes back, and she asks if anyone wants to go skiing. A few other girls agree because they can tell that Barb's really sad and she was supposed to spend time with her mom, so clearly that must have fallen through. Barb invites Claire, but she says she has other plans. This seems to kind of irritate Barb a little bit, but it's also like it's the holidays. Like, can't just like two days before holidays be like, hey, let's change all the plans. It's, it's valid. But then again, her mom did that, so, you know, who am I to say? The phone rings, and we get Jess answering the phone again. She's now in this front hallway. She yells, it's him again. It's the moaner. All the girls come in from the living room to listen to this phone call. It's very obscene. I think he says the word cunt like six times in the first phone call. It's very sexual, very creepy. Um, Barb takes the phone, tells the guy to fuck off, basically. It's very obscene. Clara looks very concerned she's like you shouldn't provoke someone like that barb and claire argue a bit and barb makes a really rude remark about rape um you know claire says that we learned that there was a woman in town um very recently who was sexually assaulted and barb makes a very very disgusting remark about um rape and sexual assault and yeah just just not cool Claire says that she's going to go finish packing. She kind of, I think, just wants some space away from Barb. Jess tries to check on her, and Claire's like, no, it's it's fine, Jess. It's okay. I, I really do need to, like, finish packing. I have stuff to get done. Jess then tells Barb to knock, knock it off, and she's like, hasn't Claire had, like, a hard enough time fitting in with you without you being, like, trying to make things more difficult? And Barb's like, whatever. I know, like, a professional virgin when I see one. She's just, Barb's just very angry. I think that that's like she's pissed and hurt and so she's just kind of lashing out at other people which isn't which isn't okay but I think that that's kind of the motive that we see with Barb throughout our time with her 
Now, Miss Mac, the house mother, has come home. She's arrived home after a long day of shopping, and the girls immediately forget about the phone call and rush her off to the living room to get Miss Mac to open her Christmas gift. Claire gets to her room, and she starts packing. She sees kind of the house cat. I think it's Miss Mac's cat on her bed uh, because she says, Miss Mac has been looking for you for a while. And so she picks the cat up. She pets it. We are now in Claire's closet, and the intruder is in the closet watching Claire. She thinks that the cat is in the closet making noises. She walks toward the closet and asks who's there, and then she's attacked and murdered. A plastic bag put over her head. The very iconic, it's like kind of the, the, one of the iconic, um, I guess, views or images from the film is Claire with the bag over her head. Now downstairs, we see what the girls got Miss Mac. It's a very colorful nightgown. Um, she tries it on for them, and then most of the girls turn in for the night. Miss Mac says goodnight and then gets out one of her hidden bottles of booze. I think she has like four or five bottles hidden throughout the house. Um, we'll, we'll highlight all those, but it's, it's very funny because she like sneaks off and then finds it and seems very relieved that it's still there and it's very interesting. Jess comes in the living room and her and Miss Mac chat for a moment and then the phone rings. Phil ends up answering it and it's Jess's boyfriend, Peter. Peter and Jess talk for a moment, and she says that she has something important to tell him. She says they can talk about it tomorrow, and he says that his piano recital is tomorrow, and that she's being rude and selfish, and tells her that this isn't time for games. She says, it's fine, we'll talk about it tomorrow, I know you're stressed out. He says, I love you, she just says, I know, and they hang up the phone. Um, we see Miss Mac upstairs brushing her teeth, and she digs out yet another bottle of hidden booze in the like tank of the toilet. Jess goes upstairs and knocks on Claire's door, but Claire doesn't answer. We see Claire dead in her room in a rocking chair with a bag over her head. Well, not in her room. She's actually in the attic in the rocking chair with a bag over her head, which, like, that's the kind of iconic image from this film. Now it's the next day, daytime. Claire's father, uh, Mr. Harrington, is on campus looking for her. He was supposed to pick her up, but she never showed where they were supposed to meet. Some kids throw a snowball at him, and he meets a boy who is at the brother fraternity of their sorority, and he tells Claire's dad how to get the sorority. Uh, now we're at the frat, and the Christmas party is in full swing, but Phyllis's boyfriend is really mad that she's not spending time with him like they had planned like a month ago. She's now going skiing with Barb and Jess because she's trying to be a good friend, but he's like, this is bullshit. Like, we've planned this for weeks like I'm fucking pissed and he's like cursing as he's dressed as Santa in front of all of these kids it's it's great I love it now Mr. Harrington is talking with Miss Mac and they're in Claire's room he's mad about the atmosphere that Claire's living in he's like I don't pay for her to come here and drink and pick up boys he also finds a picture of Claire with her boyfriend Chris and he yeah and he just seems very upset and worried, of course, which is valid. And Miss Mac tries to assure him that Claire's a really good girl. She's, you know, she doesn't drink. She doesn't, you know, do anything crazy. Like, she is a really, a really good girl. Miss Mac says that she's sure that Claire's probably at the frat house working with the kids at the Christmas party and just lost track of time. Miss Mac says that she can show him where the frat is if he'll give her a ride and, like, drop her at one of the local shops that she needs to go to. He agrees, and she goes to get ready. It's great because there's this uh, poster in Claire's room that says, um, 
I think it says all you need is peace, but it's like there's a ring of flowers and then there's two people look like they're having sex to make like the rest of the peace sign. And so Miss Mac is like trying to like her hardest like cover this poster, but he ends up seeing it anyway because it's in Claire's room. It's, it's very funny. Miss Mac goes into the bathroom to get ready and she hears the cat. She goes looking for him with, she's got like part of her lipstick on. She's only done like half of one of her top lips so she's only like got like a fourth of her lipstick on it's really funny um so she goes looking for him she's yelling for the cat she ends up dropping her bag on the stairs and she's now yelling at the cat for being a prick uh, and mr harrington pops his head up and she acts all nice again she's like this is so nice of you to do after she's like conrad you little prick and she's like all pissed off and she acts all kind he goes back downstairs and then she flips him off which is really funny we see the two of them leave out the upper window. The window Claire is in front of in the attic. It's just very sad. Now Jess is talking with Peter and we find out that Jess is pregnant, but she doesn't want to keep the baby. And that makes Peter really mad. She says that she just doesn't want to. She's got things planned. Um, you know, best to just get rid of it. And she's like, I didn't even want to tell you. So like, I'm just letting you know. He calls her selfish, she leaves, and then they agree to talk later, and he thinks that he can change her mind. Now at the frat house, Mr. Harrington calls his wife and says not to worry. He's sure that Claire's around somewhere. He'll go to the police this afternoon if they don't find her. Even if they do find her tonight, they're just going to stay in town just because it's not safe to drive in the dark. We see Barb in the background at like, because the party's still going on, joking with the kids like she's going to give them alcohol, and Mr. Harrington just seems like totally taken aback by this <laughs> and concerned back at the house jess runs downstairs when the phone rings she's dressed in a fluffy pink robe and a woman says billy and jess is like oh i'm sorry you have the wrong number and they keep asking where billy put the baby where billy put agnes where's agnes jess is clearly worried she looks very concerned and now we're at the police station they don't take Claire being gone seriously. The officer basically tells the dad, like, oh, she's probably just shacked up with a boy somewhere, like, if that makes you feel any better. And Mr. Harrington's like, it really doesn't. Like, that doesn't make me feel any better. Barb is making inappropriate jokes, and the officer tells Barb to shut up. And then she pulls out a beer can and just, like, opens it up in the police station and starts drinking. The officer talks with Barb and ends up getting the phone number. And then, like I mentioned, this is when you needed to have an operator. So you typically needed what's called an exchange. Um, so it would typically be two letters of a word, first two letters of whatever word. Um, and so you'd put that in first and then you'd put in the number so that it would help pinpoint kind of where your call was going, um, especially when there weren't numbers necessarily, or maybe you didn't know the number, you just knew the address, you could use that code to kind of find where your call needed to go and so barb jokes that their new exchange code is fellatio f-e so she like spells it for officer nash and he's like okay yeah and so he like takes down the number takes down the address all that stuff and yeah she was totally just messing with him and he doesn't realize that fellatio is synonymous for sex or intercourse so she thinks it's just the funniest thing and he thinks that she's being helpful which is just it's just very uncomfortable but funny 
We see Miss Mac get home. Her and Jess talk a little bit. Jess tells her about the phone calls, and Miss Mac says that they can't find Claire. She pulls out another bottle of hidden booze, and Jess goes out and talks with Claire's boyfriend, Chris. He and Jess go to the police to confirm that she's missing and to kind of make them take it seriously because Nash didn't take it seriously, and he's like, I want to talk with Lieutenant Ken. Like, this is bullshit. And while they get to the police station to talk with Lieutenant Ken, they hear, or we see another woman there, a mother, talking about her 13-year-old daughter being missing. She didn't show up from school. She's not shown up. Nobody knows where she is. So she's reporting her daughter missing. We see Peter is doing his piano recital, but it's really not going well. He looks really pissed. It sounds... As though he keeps hitting the wrong notes on the piano. It's just not good. The, uh, I don't want to say the judges, but the, I guess like the evaluators, maybe that's a better word for it, do not seem impressed at all with what he's producing. We learn that Janice is a 13-year-old who never came home after school. We meet Lieutenant Ken, and he talks with Jess and Chris about Claire now we're at the house with Mr. Harrington, Miss Mac, Phil, and Barb. They're kind of trying to eat some dinner. Mr. Harrington says he doesn't want to. I think it's Harrison. I think I've been messing up his name the entire time. It's Harrison. I don't know. Oh my god, I just realized. Okay. <laughs> I'm so dumb. I was not paying attention when I was typing and it I kept writing Harrington because I know a lot of people with the last name Harrington. I kept writing Harrington. It's Harrison. I'm so sorry. Claire's last name is Harrison. Her father is Mr. Harrison, not Harrington. I'm, but I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not going to go back and re-record all of this. Mr. Harrison. I think I even put it that way in the cast. Wow. I really messed that one up. Apologies. Apologies. I'm sure some people were like, why is she saying that that's their last name? Because that's not their last name. It's Harrison. And I messed it up. That's my bad. So at the house, Mr. Harrison, Miss Mac, Phil and Barb are eating dinner and talking. Barb is clearly drunk. She's talking about chimpanzees having sex. She's talking about turtles having sex. She's talking about zebras having sex. She's talking about her having sex. Everyone is super annoyed and concerned looking. Phil tells her that she's drunk and she needs to go to bed. She yells at everyone and she's like, I know that you think that I did something to Claire and I just want someone to admit it and blah, blah, blah. And she's just kind of going off and Phil's like, again, you're drunk and you need to go to bed. And Barb finally goes upstairs. At the end of the piano recital, after the evaluators have left, Peter destroys the piano. Clearly he did not do well. Also, that piano is probably not his to ruin, but he destroys the shit out of it. Jess and Chris come back to the house and they meet Mr. Harrison. They tell him that they're going to do a search for Claire and the missing 13-year-old girl. They all go out to help with the search. It's cold. It's dark. It's snowing. Miss Mac tells Phil that she may be gone when they get back because she needs to go to her sister's for the holidays and she needs to kind of get out before the weather gets even worse. Phil says that's okay, and she asks her to check on Barb before she leaves. Now in town, they're doing a search at a local park. They have volunteers and dogs out on this cold, dark night. They go out, they start searching. 
Back at the house, a figure approaches and sits down watching the house. Mac is packing and singing and drinking. A taxi has arrived and Miss Mac goes to leave, but she hears the cat again and she goes to try to find him. She's walking around the house and goes up to the attic. She sees Claire in the rocking chair, but then she is attacked by the killer and a hook goes through her neck and she's basically hung. The killer pulls her up and she dies. Taxi driver is at the door. He's yelling for someone, anyone, um, but no one answers, so he leaves. The killer is in the attic screaming and destroying things. It's a really good POV shot. At the search, Jess takes off early since she's supposed to meet Peter. Someone finds something at the search, and we like don't know which girl it is, even though we do because we know it's not Claire because she's in the attic, um, so it has to be the 13-year-old. Poor Mr. Harrison is relieved because it's not his daughter without knowing that his daughter's been dead for probably almost 24 hours now. At the house, the phone is ringing. As Jess comes inside, the caller asks Jess for help and screams into the phone. Jess wants to know why he's doing this. She tells him to stop. We hear laughing, and then she hangs up. Jess calls for Miss Mac. Jess starts calling someone, and then we see someone coming down the stairs behind her. She calls the police about the phone calls, and she wants to file a report. Peter scares her on the stairs, and she tells him about Claire being missing, she asks about the recital, and he says, well, how do you think it went? She wants to talk, um, but she's still on the phone, and the officer doesn't seem worried. While she is talking with Nash on the phone, while Jess is talking with Nash on the phone, talking about these obscene phone calls and wanting to file a report, he asks where these are coming from. Phil, Chris, and Mr. Harrison hear him taking these notes about these obscene phone calls that are coming to the sorority house where Claire lives, and they, they take that information to Lieutenant Ken. Back at the house, Jess tells Peter about the girl, because Nash says that, well, we found, you know, a 13-year-old in the park. She tells Peter about the little girl being murdered, and he assures her that Claire is okay. Claire's going to be fine. Peter says he's leaving the music conservatory and that they're going to get married. He's made this whole decision, and she looks shocked and says that she has still has dreams and that she can't marry him. She says she doesn't want to marry him. And he says, what about the baby? Now at the police station, Ken makes the connections with the phone calls and Claire were missing. Mr. Harrison and the others leave, and Ken tries to call the house, but of course can't get through with the fellatio exchange because that's not a real exchange code. Um, so he tries to talk with Nash about it. Nash doesn't seem to understand why Ken is upset. Now back at the house, Peter calls Jess very selfish, and he is very upset. He says the way you're talking about this is like you're just going to get a wart removed. Like, why are you, like, why is this so casual? Like, you're killing our baby. They continue to argue, and he says that she will not abort the baby, and she says he needs to get out of the house. He says she'll be sorry, and then he leaves right as the others are arriving. Ken is also with them, so it's Phil and Chris, Mr. Harrison, and Lieutenant Ken. Phil checks on Jess, and Jess talks with Ken. He's asking them questions about Claire and the phone calls, and they decide that they're going to put a tap on the house phones to see like, if they can get a trace, and then Ken also wants to look at Claire's room. Ken is asking them questions about Claire. They say she was a good girl who had a nice boyfriend. No one saw her this morning. Ken asks for a list of all the girls who live in the house so that he can contact them and see if anyone saw Claire this morning. 
Ken asks about any deliveries or workers that have been in the house. Phil and Jess say that they can't recall anyone being around, any suspicious anything. And the other officer who arrived with Ken is busy making sure that the phones are going to be tapped. Ken tells Jess that she needs to keep the guy on the phone as long as possible, and they're even going to leave a car parked outside with an officer in it. Ken and the officer who was assisting with the phone stuff leave. Peter is across the street lurking, which is really spooky. Phil starts crying to Jess and says that she thinks Claire's probably dead. Jess is trying to calm her down, but poor Phil just keeps crying. Jess tells Phil to go get some rest, and you know she's going to be fine just to go lie down and get some sleep. Jess says to call if there's any news and then goes upstairs. Jess looks at the phone and we see the phone guy who will be tracing the calls. He tells Ken that it will take 10 minutes for him to trace the call. Next, we get a shot of Claire in the rocking chair. The killer is rocking her and singing to her. Jess is by the fire looking nervous. Ken is waiting for the phone to ring at the police station, so he'll also be able to listen to the calls as well as the guy who is tracing the calls. I don't think he'll necessarily be able to listen, but he'll be able to trace it. The killer comes down from the attic and goes into Barb's room. We hear Barb gasp, and Jess goes to check on her. Jess gets Barb her inhaler. Barb finally calms down and says she probably just had a nightmare. She dreamed that someone came into her room. The killer watches them and then goes down the hall. Jess leaves Barb to get some more sleep. And then these Christmas carol carolers show up, a bunch of children... They're outside, Jess listens to them, and then tries to, and is trying to compose herself while she's, you know, trying to put on a happy face for the kids and, you know, enjoy that moment. She smiles at them, and then we get a point of view again from our killer. He is back upstairs and goes into Barb's room. He calls her Agnes and stabs her with a glass unicorn that she has over her bed. She's got a bunch of these, like, glass figurines, um, and he takes the unicorn one and stabs her with it. He stabs her a few times, and Jess can't hear the stabbing over the kids singing. Barb breaks her other glass figures, and Jess claps for the kids. A woman comes up to the front steps and tells the lady who's kind of in charge of these Christmas carolers to get the kids in the car now. Jess, it looks like, donates money to whatever cause the kids are singing for. I'm guessing for a church or something like that. And the woman who... the woman who was coming up the stairs after the carolers were done tells Jess about the girl who was murdered in the park. Jess says that she knows, and then the phone starts ringing. We see Ken notice the phone, and his office is ringing too. Jess picks up the phone, and the trace begins. Ken listens in on the call, and the operator is trying to trace it. The call, the caller is whining and making noises, and it sounds like three people on the phone. The voice says... Like, uh, after a few minutes, the voice makes the comment just like having a wart removed, and Jess says, oh my god. Then the caller hangs up, and Ken clocks that Jess says, oh my god, even though she hadn't talked at all throughout the first minute or so of the phone call, and the trace guy says that he wasn't able to get the call because it wasn't long enough. Ken calls her and says, tells her the bad news that we didn't get him. He wasn't on the phone long enough. But Ken asks if she recognized something since she said, oh my God. She lies and says, no, it was just kind of getting to me everything that he was saying. Ken then asks if the caller used more than one voice in the past calls. She says yes, and Ken asks who was leaving when they were arriving. And she said Peter, her boyfriend, they had had a fight. 
and he asked what it was about, but then there's this commotion going on at the station. One of his officers was shot by someone who thought that the officer was a trespasser and so, like, had every right to shoot him, but it's a whole commotion, so Ken has to get out the phone. He tells Jess he'll call her back. He goes to look and see what's going on. Um, It's nothing that big, but it gets him away from the phone um, so that him and Jess can't continue that conversation. Phil came downstairs, and her and Jess are talking, and Jess thinks that it may be Peter making these calls, especially after that comment was made. They walk through the house talking, and Phil doesn't think it would be Peter. Now it seems to be a little bit later. Both Phil and Jess are in the living room by the fire. The phone rings again, and it's Peter. He's crying. Jess says, stop crying. They can straighten things out. It's okay. And he just keeps saying, we can't kill the baby. And of course, Lieutenant Ken is on the other end of this call. She asks where he is, and the tracer's trying to trace him as well. Um, But he hangs up, and again, the call wasn't long enough. Ken calls the house and asks Jess what that was about. She's embarrassed that he heard that, and Jess tells him the truth, and Ken thinks that it also could be Peter. Ken asks if Peter was with her when any of the other calls happened, and she said yes earlier today when she got home and the phone was ringing, he was upstairs. It still could have been him though, but we know it wasn't. But she seems very relieved that it shouldn't be him or it can't be him. And we see a shadow in the back behind where Phil is sitting. Ken still wants to talk with Peter. Jess tells Ken where he can normally find Peter, either where his room is or in the like recital hall. Ken then says that she needs to try and keep the caller on the phone longer, and he says that he'll call her back later. Now we see Phil in the kitchen getting some aspirin, and she gets some for Jess as well, and then a man appears in the window. She yells for Jess, and another man is in the window with a gun. There was a search party helping the police. They chat with the girls a minute, and then they carry on with their patrol, I guess you could say. It kind of freaked the girls out. Poor Barb was scared out of her pants, Um, but they laugh about it. They joke. Is kind of a it's a good little relief before the climax of the film, if you want, if you will. Ken is getting the records on Peter. Phil goes to check on Barb and sadly is killed. Jess is now locking all the doors and windows, or checking that all the doors and windows in the house are locked. She hollers up the stairs for Phil, but of course she doesn't answer. We see the killer upstairs dialing the phone, and then the phone rings in the house, kind of in that main entryway area, where most of these calls have taken place. Jess answers, and we flash to Ken in the recital hall, and he finds the busted piano. And this, to him, tells him that Peter has the anger to hurt someone if he busted a piano that bad. We listen to the shrieking for two minutes, and then Ken gets the good news and the bad news. They got the trace, but the calls are coming from inside the house. Ken tries to radio the cop that's supposed to be outside the house, but we see that he is dead. Ken then calls Nash and says that he needs to call Jess and tell her to leave the house, not to alarm her, but just to get her out, and they're going to be on their way there. They'll be there in five minutes. Jess again calls for Phil, but there's no answer again, and the phone rings. And poor Jess isn't quite picking up on what Nash is trying to say. He's like, I just need you to put the phone down and just walk outside. Put the f-. And she's like, okay, I'll go get the girls. He's like, no, 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 just put the phone down and walk outside. And she wants to go get her friends, which is totally valid. And then he's like, Jess, the calls are coming from inside. You need to get 
fuck out of the house. Like, don't go upstairs. Just get out. She keeps calling for Phil again, but she's getting no answer. She's calling for Phil and Barb. She's getting no answer. And there's this great shot of her looking up the stairs and Nash is screaming at her not to go up the stairs. And so now she's standing at the front door just screaming for her friends, which of course we know are both dead. We see shots of the empty house and the tension grows. She gets a fire poker and makes her way upstairs. She goes to Barb's door and when she opens it, she finds both Barb and Phil dead. The killer was standing behind the door and calls Jess Agnes. We only see his eye, which looks almost red. She pushes the door into him and runs. They run through the house, but we never see Billy's face. Jess goes into the basement and locks the door. Billy's trying to break in and then stops. Jess goes down in the basement further. She hides, and then we see police cars racing across town. We see someone outside the basement, and then it's Peter. He breaks in, kicks in a window, climbs in the basement. He calls out for her, and Jess is hiding in the corner, gripping the fire poker. He's getting closer, and she's looking more and more worried. We see the police pull up, and we hear screaming coming from the house right as Ken is finding his dead officer. Ken and the other officers break into the basement and find Peter dead and Jess half out of it. She looks asleep or maybe dead, but opens her eyes when Ken calls her name. She's now in a bed at the house asleep, and Ken is saying he had a gut feeling it was Peter. Claire's boyfriend and dad are in the room with her, and a doctor has given her a sleeping agent. They leave her in the room to rest, and Claire's dad faints, and they're going to take him to the hospital. Like, why can't Jess go to the hospital? Like, Jess should also be going to a fucking hospital. I don't understand that. And these poor guys still don't know that Claire is dead. They haven't searched the house yet. They haven't got things locked down. And Chris tries to assure Mr. Harrison that it's okay. We'll find Claire. She'll turn up. And it's like, babe, she's dead in the attic. Like, I'm sorry. So then everyone just kind of leaves Jess alone in the house. They shut the lights off. It's empty. We pan around the house, seeing it's empty. And we hear Billy laughing. We pan to the attic entrance, and we see Claire and Miss Mac. Billy is up there talking. We're now outside, and we can see a cop having a smoke break. He's waiting for the kind of investigative team to show up and, you know, take pictures and do all of that stuff. And we hear the phone ring, but no one goes to answer it. And then the credits roll. And that is the end of Black Christmas. I have watched this so many times in the last two weeks it's been so fun had my boyfriend watch it for the first time and yeah this is just it was such a groundbreaking like horror movie it's kind of been a blueprint for so many horror movies especially like the the slasher genre which is probably one of my favorite genres within horror yeah, super great to do this one and had to do it for the holiday season. So I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I hope that you're having a great holiday, whatever you celebrate and you and your friends and family are safe. I know the weather is pretty crazy in parts of the world. Like I said, it's a, a what's called a mini blizzard here. I do not want to see a full blizzard. Um, but yeah, it's a, and I know back home where in the Pacific Northwest is they're getting tons of ice and tons of car accidents and just really bad. So I hope that all of your friends and family are safe and that you have a nice holiday season. I've got the next week off of work as well. I'm getting ready to kind of go see, visit my brother on the East Coast for New Year's, which I'm very excited about because I've not seen him in about six months. So that'll be nice. And yeah, just kind of trying to relax and stay warm. It is so cold here. 
Um, and my 100-year-old house is trying to keep up, but it's just a little drafty. So windows are on the agenda, I think, for summertime. Getting some of these windows replaced, so it's hopefully not as drafty next winter. But we're making it through. We're surviving. And yeah, just got to take it one day at a time. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please feel free to like it uh, wherever you listen, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or a different platform. Um, I really enjoy doing this. And if you want to check out the podcast on socials, um, I have the podcast on Twitter and Instagram under M Murder Movies. So that's M as in Massacre, Murder Movies on Instagram and Twitter. And I hope that you have a lovely, safe holiday, whatever you're getting up to. Um, hope you're in feeling in the mood, in the spirit. And if not, um, do whatever you need to to take care of yourself. I know it's a it's a hard time of year for a lot of people. Uh, it's been kind of hard for me not being home with like my normal family. Like I'll get to see you know my mom, and my brother over New Year's, but it feels weird not being home doing the normal traditional Christmas stuff with my family. So if that's you, um, do whatever you need to 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 get through it. You know, watch whatever movies you need, drink however much hot cocoa, uh, call your friends and family. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. But I hope that you have a lovely holiday season and I'll see you in the new year. Remember to stay safe and stay spooky.